In Atlanta, one voice has stood out for over four decades. An AJC original, The Monica Pearson Show. Let's talk about how you got to ESPN. Revealing interviews. You are known as America's doctor, but I want to know who you were before that. When you have a different name, you have different color skin, it can be tough. With Atlanta's most famous faces as you've never seen them before. I'm telling my story. This is the American dream. The Monica Pearson Show, streaming now on AJC.com. Hip-hop is a product of black people. It's a product of black song and celebration. The Atlanta Journal-Constitution presents... Hip-hop's most pulled elements are pulled from the South. A Southern hip-hop story. We always go back to that moment of the Source Awards. Everybody wants your rhythm, but they don't want your blues. The biggest names in hip-hop. Atlanta is still the mecca for hip-hop. 50 years. No one can deny... One film. The power of the South now. The South got something to say. Streaming now at AJC.com slash hip-hop. Hello and welcome to the latest edition of the Politically Georgia podcast, where we bring you news and analysis from all the latest Georgia shenanigans in Congress and under the Gold Dome. And today I'm joined by my boss's boss, Leroy Chapman, our deputy managing editor. How's it going, Leroy? Going fine. How are you, Greg? I'm good, except for the you know the whole football game from, I guess, two weeks ago now. Uh, and still a final. University of South Carolina, 20. University of Georgia, 17. <laughs> I'm just so glad. That coming after the Braves' disastrous 13-1 to defeat. And, of course, the Falcons lost another game after the Bulldogs lost. But at least I have my weekends free now. I, I, I'm not spending that much time following sports anymore. <laughs> All my teams are kind of out of it for now, for now at least. Georgia still has a chance to— Georgia still has an outstanding chance. Yeah, but they're 2-0 and in games I've been there. I was at the Tennessee game and the Notre Dame game, so at least at least their winning record with me survives. You're the, you're the key. Kirby, Kirby just <laughs> yeah. needs to give you a traveling budget. Yeah. Well, we're here today to talk about something else. Um, just as interesting, though, um, Georgia politics and— um, speaking of c- competitions, the, the the ongoing bizarre competition between Georgia and Ohio, because Ohio just had its debate um, a couple days ago in Columbus, in the outskirts of Columbus, a suburb called Westerville, and Georgia Democrats were anxiously and eagerly watching that debate to look to look at things that went right in Columbus and went wrong in Columbus, because Georgia will be holding its own debate on November 20th. And it really reflects, too, a lot of Democrats saw it kind of poetic justice that the debate shifts from Ohio to Georgia, because Democrats here have been saying for the longest time, for years, the National Party is spending too much time and energy and effort focusing on Ohio when it could be spending that same money on focusing on Georgia, which is they view as more competitive. Yeah, you know, and demographically, you look at Georgia, and Georgia is really much more reflective of America in a lot of ways. So you can make the argument on both sides, right? Because uh, obviously, Ohio, with its Midwestern history and economy, uh, is important because those are active voters, and it has been such a bellwether swing state for so long. But if you're talking about the future of the country and the electorate, uh, Georgia's a place to be, and it's hard to argue that they aren't. And you use that keyword bellwether, and, and, and that is that is like Ohio's shining <laughs> trophy, is they are the bellwether. Only once since 1944 has the president not carried Ohio, and that was in 1960 when Ohio's Ohioans voted for Richard Nixon instead of um, JFK. Every election since then has been, whoever Ohio picks has been the president. Yeah. And including um, three years ago with Donald Trump, and it wasn't even close. It was an eight-point Trump victory. 
really surprising. If you think back to Election Day, that was one of the kind of bigger surprises that the margin was there. Uh, I think before Election Day, I mean, Ohio was in the in the Trump column. Mm-hmm. I mean, people thought that. And, of course, those who did not take the president now, who was a candidate Trump then, seriously, uh, Ohio did say something, I think, about his strength as a candidate. Uh, but I think the other thing, too, about Georgia is the reason why Ohio will not hold on to so, some of that distinction is because of its population and its economy. Uh, population is aging and probably uh, outdistancing America at large in terms of its age. And two, its its economic base of manufacturing, especially with, with automobiles, has sort of changed the economy for a long, long time. So uh, it's interesting to look at uh, the development of politics in, in, in Ohio. Uh, but you start thinking about North Carolina, think about Georgia, you think about the Sun Belt. You know, those are going to be the places in the future because of the, where the population is shifting and the diversity of the economies. And also, too, when you think of it this way, uh, those are two states that have both urban and rural economies that speak to sort of the the, the gap in America and the, or the rift in American politics, which very much is uh, rural and conservative and urban and moneyed and liberal. Yeah, Ohio is older and whiter than Georgia. And yeah. and think about this. In in the 16 election, more than $100 million was spent by both parties just flooding Ohio with ads and campaign activities. $70 million alone from Hillary Clinton's campaign were spent in Ohio. And she lost the state by eight points. She spent barely a tenth of that. I mean, it, Georgia got very little spending and resources from, from either party in, in 2016. And Hillary Clinton won, lost Georgia by five points. So it was a, a much more narrow margin um, in, in Georgia without even spending any any real significant time or, or energy here. And she didn't visit Georgia once um, <laughs> since since she won the after winning the primary. So that tells you everything. Fast forward to this cycle where Trump has already visited Ohio twelve times since winning office. He's visited Georgia a few times, but clearly still sees Ohio as the linchpin to any re-election efforts. And that's true. If he loses Ohio, he's in real trouble. Um, at the same time, national Democratic groups are already kind of starting to take a step back. Priorities USA, this super PAC that spent a, a lot of money in Ohio, um, last cycle, millions of dollars in Ohio last cycle, has said that it's not one of its top priorities. And guess what it is? Georgia, Georgia. Arizona, and North Carolina. <laughs> right. So these states that they in the Sun Belt they see as much more competitive. Yeah, you know, demography is destiny, right? I mean, I think that, you know, as trite as that might be, uh, there's still a lot of truth to that. So uh, Georgia will be uh, significant uh, going forward. So uh, I think both Democrats and Republicans uh, have to pay a lot of attention to Georgia. Uh, This has been a pretty comfortable Republican, reliable uh, in presidential elections, and certainly it's been Republican-dominated for a long time. But you can't ignore what's been happening over the last couple of election cycles. And, of course, if you add that to, uh, again, you, you going back to the 16 results, uh, much closer than we thought. And then you add in what happened 18 with the gubernatorial race. And it all adds up to Georgia being a, a, a state that's going to be very closely contested. The other thing, too, in terms of uh, where we are compared to where Ohio was, uh, Georgia as a state, young, but the diversity, and if you start looking at the ARC, just had a report about Metro Atlanta and looking at some of these co- counties that are that are trending toward becoming majority, minority mm-hmm. counties that are right Cobb here in the core. Right. So those places, the politics uh, are inevitably going to change. 
Uh, we got that. I'm in uh, Leadership Gwinnett. I'm part of the 2020 class, which is the best class in the history of Leadership <laughs> Gwinnett, <laughs> if anybody's asking. And uh, so we got the ARC report uh, probably the day before it became public. Uh, but it is stunning. They have these these graphics, these bubbles that show you uh, through 2050 what uh, the state is going to look like. Uh, and it is going to be a state that's going to be certainly much more minority. Uh, but I think there will be bastions of conservatism because the state will be older. And I think uh, the age will still argues for a lot of Republican strength. So uh, it's not that the, the, that the demographics are going to make the state suddenly liberal. Oh, yeah. And but it, it'll just it'll close the gap of what we've been saying over the past 30 years. And you highlighted a few things. I mean, even as what we saw in 2018 in Georgia is the rural Republican, quote unquote, red areas became even redder. Yeah. The areas that, that Mitt Romney, John McCain might have won by 60, 70 percent, Trump won by 80 or 90 percent. Also, you talked about the suburbs, Gwinnett and Cobb. Um, it's interesting because in, in Ohio, the Ohio debate was held in a suburb called Westerville right outside of Columbus that is one of those suburbs that Democrats love to highlight because it it's so Republican that that's where Governor John Kasich um, was from. And he still lives right around the corner from, from that area. Um, it was solidly conservative in the legislature for a long time. Well, it just recently flipped. And it was Democrats picked up three, flipped three, three seats in the, in the Ohio State Legislature in last year's midterm. And six seats, I should say, but three of them were from the Columbus suburban area. In Georgia, there's the same trend. But the concern for Ohio Democrats that they don't usually say publicly, but at least privately, is there's not as many Westervilles in Ohio <laughs> as there are that potential in Georgia. Because here in Georgia, the densely populated metro Atlanta suburbs, not just the six seats, you had you had more than a dozen seats flip over the past uh, two election cycles. Um, and Democrats see their biggest gains now. I mean, Gwinnett went from the biggest Republican stronghold, one of the bigger Republican strongholds, now a Democratic must win. I mean, Clint, uh, uh, Stacey Abrams won it with 57 percent yeah, of the vote. Yeah. Well, you know, it's an opportunity for Democrats uh, to build their party from the ground up. Uh, when you begin thinking about up and down a ballot where there's opportunity, there's opportunity locally. There's opportunity in state races, of course, uh, but it is a, a, a matter of organization and money. And so the, the quality of the party and, them, and, and their ability to seize upon what is certainly a moment, uh, I think that's uh, there's some worry about you know, how much support that Democrats going to get nationally. So that's a big question to answer. But also, too, you know, what do Democrats do here in order to build a party? Uh, we've seen the last couple of election cycles. Uh, it felt like that that gap that was about six to eight points would never be closed. Mm -hmm. And Stacey Abrams um, shown that it, it certainly is possible. But the question, of course, you're right, Greg, is this. Uh, can they build a party from the ground up where they began developing a bench, uh, finding the kind of candidates that can excite the electorate? And also speak to, I think, uh, how our politics have changed now, because uh, I think with uh, you know online organizing and online giving, uh, and uh, certainly uh, the ability for social media to sort of dictate what's important to the public, uh, there is some expectation now of what a Democratic candidate might look like. Yeah. And certainly uh, I think the tradition of it, uh, you have to kind of throw that out the window when you begin looking at who's emerging in the Democratic Party. Yeah, and look, and, and the National Party has finite resources. Tom Perez, the, the national chairman of the Democratic Party, likes to say every state's a battleground. We're, we're going to fight in every zip code. But the <laughs> truth is, every dollar spent in another state is one that's not spent in Georgia or yeah. Ohio or whatever the party wants to make a priority. And so this this debate, November 20th, will be a chance for Democrats to, to, to 
hit home with their message that they've been saying for a long time, which is Georgia's truly competitive. Is we're not just don't give Georgia lip service this year. And Republicans, the difference too now is Republicans acknowledge it too, right? Mm-hmm. There's 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 no at least Republicans, including Governor Kemp. I mean, Republicans who've been watching these these trends say there's no denying it after last no, year's no. really tight election that Georgia's a battleground and Republicans have to get ready too for that. Yeah, they do. So with this debate, uh, th- there's a big question, of course, is where. So at this taping, we don't exactly know where, but we know that there are some possibilities. So talk a little bit about the difference between do I go suburban? Do I go urban? Uh, and how do I speak to the to the uh, those voting blocks that you want them to hear from Democrats, that you want Democrats to be front and center in front of those folks? So talk about the statement that the party is going to be making yeah, it's by its choice. It's rife with symbolism, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, watching it from home, viewers will see the same basic setup, uh, you know, a lot of blue in the background, 10 or 12 different podiums, the candidates. But where it's held says a lot. And, and, and where MSNBC and the, and the National Party decide to hold this will we'll send a signal. And it c- could be at Carter Center. It could be somewhere in the city of Atlanta, the cradle of the civil rights movement. That will have some resonance. Mayor Bottoms, Mayor Keisha Lance Bottoms, has pitched very aggressively for it to be held in Atlanta, saying that Atlanta's home to the most vibrant Democratic electorate in Georgia, and that's where it should be held. But there's also a case to be made for the suburbs, whether it be Sandy Springs or the Cobb Galleria or KSU or Georgia Gwinnett College or one of those those campuses just on the outskirts of Atlanta because, as we mentioned earlier, those are the areas that Democrats are making – see as their biggest potential to, 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 to make more inroads. Those are the areas where used to be Republican-leaning, used to be dominated by – the Tom Prices and Senator Isaacson got a start in the 6th District and up in Cobb County. And now if you look at the, the, the map of the state legislative districts, it's almost entirely blue. There's a few there's a few Republican-held districts still in those inner suburbs, but only a handful. You had a sweep of about a dozen Democratic victories last year. Mm-hmm. And of course, headlined by Lucy McBath yeah. in the 6th District in Congress. Um, and so that could be a statement for the party, too, if they decide to hold it somewhere up in the northern burbs. Any chance they'll hold it in a rural county? There's a lot of talk about that, too, right? I mean, if, if, if one, of the, one of the Democrats' biggest weaknesses um, was the, the Republican dominance in those rural counties, the counties that both Trump and Kemp won by 80, 90 percent of the votes, where, you know, if they had won it by 60 or 70 percent, a couple of those counties, it would have been a lot closer of an election. Um, so there's talk about having it in Macon, maybe in Milledgeville, which mm-hmm. is really interesting. That's a um, that's a, it's a there's a college campus there in Baldwin County in Milledgeville. Baldwin County is one of the tightest, swingiest Georgia districts, Georgia counties. Um, it went 49 percent, 51 percent in the last couple of elections. It's been very, very razor thin margins. Um, so it'd be really interesting. Of course, there's logistical challenges, too, because that's about uh, that's 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 more than an hour outside of Atlanta. So it's a little harder for for the hordes of media, because <laughs> I, I don't say that uh, lightly. There is more than 700 credentialed media over in Ohio and hundreds more who did not get into the debate, who were TV crews or just watched it from outside or watched it from local local bars. Um, and then a lot of just political tourists who come to these things, too, and, and aides to the, the candidates. And um, just a whole, there's a whole economy that kind of follows these presidential campaigns around. Oh, ah, OK. Well, see, you've just informed my best guess for where it's going to be. Want to know where it's going to be? Where? Plains, Georgia. 
planes. <laughs> Absolutely no hotel rooms. None. <laughs> no, no, no venue. No, no venue. <laughs> they can hold it at the at the church at a at President Carter's church. Well, you know the Rylander Theater in Americas is not too far away, but uh-huh. it'd, it'd be hard though. There is the Best Western in in, in Americas that is probably one of my favorite hotels in all of Georgia. Uh. But you know I don't I don't know if they could they could fit uh, the, the three thousand or so. <laughs> yeah, I know I know it's hard to hold anything in, in planes. It's funny, but. But yeah, I think to your point about it making a statement, uh, what about this? So here's my um, wondering if this actually comes to pass. So you think about March, and we've got Super Tuesday, we vote uh, three weeks after Super Tuesday. Uh, that's right, three weeks, right? Mm-hmm. Okay, three weeks after Super Tuesday, we're voting. We still have a competitive nomination process. So let's say we have two, three Democrats uh, still on the ballot. And Georgia's vote becomes that much more significant. Could th- they think about that as, uh, and I don't know if this gives Democrats any competitive advantage, but I wonder if the calculation gets to that. You know, if Georgia's going to be uh, in the primary process, if it's going to be competitive, then where should it be if these are the voters that we're going to need to talk to in order to be able to make a decision? So is that a, is that a wild off the grid question, or, or could they be considered? Look, I mean, like they that? could also come back. Ah, that's true too. And 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 remember, you know, ahead of the, uh, the New Hampshire uh, primary back in '16 in Iowa, there were several debates in New Hampshire and Iowa, and I think in South Carolina as well mm-hmm. back then too. So they could definitely come back. The schedules only set through. Well, we don't even know where the December debate will be, but we know there'll be a, another round of debates next year. The interesting thing about these events too is they, as much as as we we will and, and rightly so, make a big deal about it being in Georgia. The questions are ninety five percent of the questions are national based right. questions. They might throw in a question about the heartbeat bill or about voting rights in Georgia. They almost have to, right? It'd be it'd be a story if they didn't talk about voting rights um, in in the state where right. it'd be, it was such a uh, a potent issue in last year's election. Um, but for the most part, you, you expect to see a lot of questions about national issues. Um, at the same time. Our readers and 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 and, and our, us reporters will want to know a lot about the the local issues that will drive us to the polls. And really, one of our best opportunities, if you look what happened in Columbus and in Houston for the debate before that, the candidates had a string of events in 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 Texas and in Ohio before these debates. And so it'll be really interesting to see. Voters come out, and there might be four or five events on the same day, you know, yeah. the, the Tuesday before the debate. But that'll also be an opportunity for voters, maybe their town halls, maybe mm-hmm. their but, – but to ask them very specific Georgia questions. Yeah. Now, since you said that, it, it, it kind of makes me think that it have to be the suburbs or the city because if they're going to plan perhaps and take full advantage to leverage the, the, the opportunity of the debate of – the debate, to uh, do these other things, which if it's other fundraising or if there are other events that Democrats want to hold to uh, showcase their candidates, then probably it argues for it being somewhere in the population center rather than being in, in rural, even though the staging and that sort of thing may send a message. Uh, it feels like that if it's important for Democrats to also do these other things that uh, a, a, a very urban or suburban setting yeah. may be. And that's where that's kind of what Westerville was. It was a small town. 20 minutes outside of Columbus, but it still felt like a small town. It still was a small town, it still, but it still had that, you know, a very unique feel that you weren't. It, it was such. It was a big event that didn't get drowned out by the city around it, right? Mm-hmm. Um, Houston, 
kind of did get drowned out. I mean, Houston, it was a big story for sure, but it wasn't necessarily the biggest story of the week for people mm-hmm. in Houston because it's a, it's the third or fourth largest city in, in the nation. There's right. all sorts of other things going on. Um, so I could see it, you know, being if it's held in Sandy Springs or in, or in Marietta, like well, that kind of interesting situation where you have national reporters wandering around the streets of, oh, yeah. of Marietta saying, well, here's this local eatery and here's, the, <laughs> here's that. Um, we talked about finite resources earlier, and I want to segue a little bit because we also saw firsthand the finite resources of Democratic donors in, in the race for Senate. And you have a clear front runner in the Democratic race against David Perdue. David Perdue had another seven-figure haul. He's, he's, he has a, he's built himself a dominating fundraising lead. But on the Democratic side, you had, um, I guess, a lot more tepid fundraising. John Ossoff, the, the, the kind of king of fundraising in Georgia, who raised $30 million during that 2017 race for right. Congress. In three weeks, he raised a considerable amount of money. He raised $800,000. And he actually is leading the field now, um, thanks to some other money he transferred over from that campaign, he's got more than a million bucks in in, in uh, total raised. Right. Um, but you also saw some of the other candidates kind of really struggle, um, and part and part of it might be because of the presidential election. Part of it might be because of the specter of another Senate race. Part of it is also a lot of Democrats are still on the sidelines. Yeah, it is surprising. So, and especially when you think about this, I mean, so when Nancy Pelosi was in with us, she couldn't have been uh, more emphatic about the point that uh, this is these are important races and that uh, the balance of the Senate, of course, uh, you cannot overstate that. And if you genuinely think Georgia has a chance, then you would think that, you know, you would have someone that the National Party at, at a certain point is going to start putting some money behind and that that, you know, fundraising apparatus will start supporting someone. But I think, you know, it's reflective, too. Uh, there, there are folks here who aren't generally known. Yeah, uh, I don't think there's. I mean, you have to have at least some name recognition before you start getting uh, what's important too. Is some small dollar stuff, things that say I'm running, I'm in the race, and something that starts to define your opponent, things like that. You're just not hearing messaging either. So I just think that there are a lot of people who don't really have a clue as to who's running. And I think Ossoff certainly benefits from the fact that he he ran before. He's got some name ID compared to anyone else who could possibly be on the Democratic side, he's got more recent name ID. But anyway, it's it's something that Democrats have to resolve because, you know, the likes of, you know, David Perdue and whomever is going to be the uh, Republican who's going to run for, for the uh, Isaacson seat, uh, money won't be a problem for them. Yeah, it's really interesting all. watching at all. how the national folks are treating these fundraising numbers because several national observer, uh, political reporters um, moved Georgia from a category of toss-up or, or leaning Republican to more solidly Republican, Republican. <laughs> with these new numbers. Now, we're, we're, we're a little more cl- closer to the action, and we kind of know that there's, there's John Ossoff just got in the race. There's been very little attention paid to, to messaging as much as, as they are fundraising. I mean, right now, the, it's, it's mostly about fundraising and getting the campaign's organization up. Um, pretty soon, it will shift to TV ads and all that. So it's really early to see to say whether or not Georgia's, you know, whether or not Purdue has a, a, a huge advantage. But we do know he has a huge advantage fundraising. We also know that some of the other candidates, let's talk about Teresa Tomlinson, the former Columbus mayor. She was the only candidate in the race for a long time, for, for right. three or four months. And that first 
her first fundraising period, she raised about half a million dollars, which is nothing to sneeze at, but also nothing that scared any rivals away. She did not establish herself as the clear and convincing front runner by any means. And in the second quarter, she raised even less. She raised about $380,000. So that was seen as a sign for some Democrats that this field is really unsettled. <laughs> and then the other two candidates um, raised less. Sarah Riggs Amico, who right. ran for lieutenant governor last year, she raised about 310000 And Ted Terry, the Clarkston mayor, he raised less than $100,000 and said outright, look, I'm not the establishment pick. And I, I, he's not running away from it. He's not. He's he is. Donors are running away from him right yeah, now. Yeah. Well, you know, they they and, and they don't really know him. And even Sarah Riggs Amico, who, of course, was on the ballot for lieutenant governor, has some name ID. But still, you know, even in that race, I mean, that race was about Stacey Abrams Stacey and Kemp. It was really not about who was down ballot at all. So this is not anything against uh, uh, Miss Amico. It's about just the reality of politics. Yeah. And, and a public that, uh, you know, there's only few uh, politicians that they're really going to know. But, again, there is some urgency, though, because when you talk about some some establishment and raise money, that sort of thing, uh, it's going to be important. Uh, th- th- there's going to be some ragna tails, of course, of whoever the, the nominee is. And, of course, that's going to take care of some things. But still, uh, in, in, in a closely contested race, there is nothing like having it, being able to at least meet your opponent with some of that fundraising because uh, you just want to be as present as they are, especially during the closing days. Uh, so it's it's going to be an important thing. But I know it will resolve itself because uh, I'm sure that the National Party will not not fund yeah. the, these uh, whomever wind up bec- becoming a candidate's this race. I'm pretty sure they will fund them. And by the way, that's what happened in 16, right? Um, Jim Barksdale becomes no. the Democratic Senate no, mm-hmm. nominee and was pretty much ignored by, um, by by the National Party and by the Clinton campaign. But you're right. I mean, this is an entirely different environment, and you've got, and that's a, that brings up another point. You you didn't Democrat. This is a pro, This is an issue Democrats are not accustomed with because, in past recent elections, there has either been a clear field mm-hmm. like in Jason Carter, he didn't right. face anyone in 2014. Right. Or a clear party favorite like Michelle Nunn, like Jim Barksdale, and to a degree, Stacey Abrams. She had a very formidable uh, uh, opponent in Stacey Evans, but all the endorsements, all the national money, all the special interest groups, not all of them, but 95% of them went behind Stacey Abrams from the get-go. So there was a clear party favorite in that race, too. In this one, you don't have that yet. You might, no. you might, but you don't have anyone who's who's emerged as the clear front-runner yet. And so that's made it, that's divided the Democratic donor establishment. Sure, sure. Well, I think it speaks to something that you've written about before for years, and that is, you know, the Democrats, and is there a bench? Uh, do they have the types of candidates that can win statewide? I mean, you think about the Republican dominance all along, it's been uh, you know, are the demographics going to pay, going to pan out at some point to favor Democrats or can they catch lightning in a bottle and get the, the, the kind of candidate that actually can. And I know that, uh, for a long, long time, you know, you have to wait for the demographics, but also too, you know, do they have the kind of candidate, uh, the pool of candidates from which to draw who can be someone that you look at and say, yeah, this is the person who's next. Um, so, uh, I think that, if you look at Abrams, she certainly built a resume over time that was building up to her becoming a gubernatorial candidate. And she was ready on day one coming off the bench to say, I'm going to be a statewide candidate. And, of course, the success that she had is that, you know, some of those demographics showed up, but she she was the type of candidate that could carry that. Well, I don't think the Democrats have 
five more Stacey Abrams type. <laughs> uh, Dem, uh, there are not five Stacey Abrams type Democrats, and I mean in terms of preparedness mm-hmm. to set, to step into these important races. And I think that's the real problem for Democrats as much as anything. And look, Stacey Abrams gets mocked for that famous spreadsheet she has that charted out when she was 18 her rise to be president. But it also shows you that she's been planning to to one degree or another to run for statewide office and and to eventually go to Washington. Um, for for her entire adult life, yeah, yeah. and and so not and she's not the only Democrat to do that, but it does show the amount of preparation she has, and also look the fact that Isaac Senator Isaacson, in his very surprising, shocking announcement uh, mm-hmm. that he's stepping down, that kind of rejiggered the playing field a lot for for Democrats, of course for Republicans too, but for Democrats who might have thought twenty twenty two or twenty twenty four or twenty twenty six, suddenly there's a twenty twenty right. race. And that side of the Democratic contest is very quiet right now. There's there's an effort by the National Party to get behind one candidate, and it's not going to be Matthew Lieberman, the the son of Joe Lieberman and the educator who who, who did just get in the race for Democrats. Mm-hmm. Um, it won't be him. They're going to try to get behind some, you know, better known Democratic official, but we're not sure who it is yet. But you're right. Um, they're trying to develop that bench quicker than they expected. Meanwhile. 500 Republicans. Republicans, right. Yeah, and that's <laughs> <I'm> a, <laughs> yeah, right. And so that's a good way to sort of look at it. Look at the other side. So as soon as this happened, Republicans didn't know either. But, you know, they, they wound up having so many. I mean, we just don't know. But there are other folks who obviously had this sort of ambition, who had begun, begun building the kind of resume which says that, you know, I might be ready to take on a statewide kind of race, where, it do, where they don't, from the moment, they're not unknown entirely, and they don't feel like real long shots. It's a real competition between uh, some folks who, um, you know, who've, who've, who've profiled this way. So that's the best sort of way to look at sort of the, the, the predicament Democrats find themselves, because on the other hand, these Republicans who've dominated all these state races, well, you know yeah. what? They, they've got candidates who can step right in and, and make a of, case. And as of this taping, we still don't have a, a de- definitive timeline for when Kemp will well, the point I'm checking in all the time. Um, there's rumors flying. I got um, about 20 text messages about a certain rumor this morning, um, and there's lots of there's lots of good. I'll put it this way: there's lots of solid contenders who are still on the sidelines, who you would think would be immediately on a, a governor Kemp shortlist at the very least. And um, we can go through some of the bigger names that haven't applied, but Lieutenant Governor Jeff Duncan, mm-hmm. Agriculture uh, Commissioner Gary Black, Chris Carr, the Attorney General. Um, Karen Handel, the former congresswoman who's now running for a, a comeback bid. Right. Um, Tom Graves, a U.S. congressman. Drew Ferguson, another congressman. So a lot of a lot of big names just on the sideline, and I don't think many of them, if maybe all of them, stay on the sidelines. I, I, you know, maybe one or two of those names jump in, but but each of them has their own political risks for doing that, and that's kind of what this this application process is forced. It's forced. Uh, it's it's. In a, in a way, it's good because it's, it's it's brought a lot of names to the table that maybe the governor didn't think of before. And in a way, it's also forced some hands um, yeah. from some folks who who probably wanted to be considered but can't publicly say it. Yeah, yeah. So uh, the big story for us uh, once this thing settles out is just how did the governor r- arrive at his decision? Because uh, we can envision what's going to happen. He's going to stand up. He's going to say, this is our person, and he's going to – extol all their virtues. This is how, but I'd, I'd really think that the real story is, uh, you know, what is he weighing? Uh, I think when, when he settles on someone, I think the politics will be probably pretty easy to figure out. Uh, but again, uh, I think that 
you know, it's it's a bargaining chip. I mean, if you're a governor, this doesn't happen too often. No. And depending on who you are, you can, you know, you can also use it to your benefit too, or you can like a. Uh, uh, Former Governor Blagojevich, right? Or you can go to prison, right? Or you go to prison. Take bribes. For, no, but it is the most but, po- important political decision that Governor Kemp um, has uh, will have made. Yes, sure. So, I mean, I, I, it, I think the real story for us is to try to get as much insight as as we can to his decision making, and, and hopefully, he can be as transparent. He, he will be really transparent about it. Uh, so that's that's the real hope there. But um, in any regard, I think you're right, Greg. Uh, there could be any number of people who even, haven't even, I guess, publicly raised their hands who could factor into it. Um, but it's going to be a really, really important decision, and certainly most important of which is electability because, you know, you cannot uh, nominate someone to that post and not have them have uh, what it takes to be able to defend it once they've got to defend Yeah, and remember, defend it when you're on the same ballot as Governor Kemp in 2022. So he's essentially picking his own running mate. Yeah, and that's a, that's a very good point because, you know, once we get to 2022, who knows what the political world will look like? I mean, will we be on the second term of Donald Trump? Uh, and Republicans at that point, either they're starting to pivot away from Trump or will we suddenly have a, um, a political reality where there's a Democratic president and a Democratic House that may, may even be even more Democratic? And uh, the fight is going to be in the Senate, which, of course, whomever is in this would factor into that because, you know, very well, we could be swinging the other way. So it's going to be really interesting uh, to, to, to figure out what the landscape of 2022 will look like. Well, we're going to have a lot of fun ahead watching all the stuff in 2020 and also 2022, of course, as you reminded us. Well, thank you for joining us, Leroy. We really appreciate it. Well, thank you for having me. And uh, once again, it's a final. Gamecocks, 20. Bulldogs, 17. Still a final. <laughs> well, that's all for this week's edition of the Politically Georgia podcast. Head to AJC.com forward slash politics to subscribe to Politically Georgia. You'll get access to our daily newsletter, along with all of our stories and updates on all things Georgia politics. Don't forget to subscribe to our podcast and rate us. It really means a lot to us when you do. And as always, thank you for listening. Donald Trump has been indicted in Atlanta. We have so many court dockets to follow, but we haven't really seen anything yet. The Atlanta Journal-Constitution has covered every moment of this historic case. I've been writing about this investigation for two and a half years. Our team is led by reporters Bill Rankin and Tamar Hallerman. Follow our coverage on AJC.com and listen to new in-depth episodes of the award-winning podcast, Breakdown, The Trump Indictment, only from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Our journalists at the Atlanta Journal-Constitution are working around the clock to keep you updated on all the developments surrounding the Trump indictment. Now the AJC is putting all of our coverage in one place with our new Trump 19 newsletter. Every Wednesday, you'll have our latest coverage and analysis on this historic case in your inbox. So sign up for free today at AJC.com slash indictment newsletter. That's all one word, AJC.com slash indictment newsletter.